Good morning, everybody, wherever you're joining us from. Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. I am your host, Lisa Salberg, founder and CEO of the HCMA. And today it is my pleasure to have a friend and a colleague here with us who is with our HCMA Recognized Center of Excellence at NYU, New York City. No small task there. Maria, welcome to Tales from the Heart. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to the audience so they understand how Maria became a nurse and like why we're talking today. I am a nurse practitioner at NYU. Like Lisa said, I work um, in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy program there. And uh, I've been with that program since about 2017. Um, But I was an RN for many years um, since 2009. And in 2015, I finished with my master's degree um, in nursing and became a nurse practitioner. I was an acute care nurse practitioner. So I was working at the bedside in interventional cardiology, did things like cardiac caths and EP ablations and devices and things like that. And I worked on a unit where Dr. Sherrod used to admit his patients to to initiate disopyramide when we used to hospitalize patients for that. And so that's where I actually was first introduced to um, the team and, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And at that time, it was just Dr. Sherrod and Mila Arabajian, uh, a family nurse practitioner. And so working with them on that unit, just getting to know, Mila and I became friendly. And then she um, was going to starting a family. And she asked me if I wouldn't mind helping her out in the office when she was on maternity leave. So I started working overtime uh, one day a week, just kind of helping out in the office, which is new for me because I had been at the bedside for years. I worked cardiothoracic intensive care as an RN for many years before I became a nurse practitioner. Um, Cardiothoracic and also cardiac care. Uh, So it was both um, ICU type um, floors, pre and post-op. And so, um, and so it was new for me to be in the outpatient realm of things and to see patients outside of their worst days, um, usually. And, um, but also to the follow-up was intriguing to me because in the hospital, you see somebody for a day or two or three, hopefully, and then they go home and they you know, you never really see them again. Um, some patients obviously are there longer than they would prefer, but, um, but for the outpatient, it's like, you really get to know long term, like how these patients are doing. And so really, um, started to grow on me and the practice was, was, was a hybrid because we see patients both in clinic and in the hospital. So mm-hmm. when they offered me a part-time job um, to come in, because she was going for her PhD, still needed help, um, then I started doing two days in the office and two days in the hospital. And then the hospital um, changed a little bit, and they were getting rid of the kind of per diem um, NPs. They were trying to fully staff every everybody. So the, my position essentially went away. And uh, I told Dr. Sherrod, I said, well, I, I need full-time hours. And he, and so he was like, well, let's try and get you full-time because he didn't want you know me to not be there. But they couldn't offer me full-time at that time. So I started working in adult congenital for a couple of days. And it got to the point where that was going to be going away. And, um, and I said, I just need full-time. And, and the adult congenital physician, I'm not sure if, I think you might be familiar, Dr. Dan Halpern. Yep. He told Dr. He's worked with Dr. Sherrod as well, the fellow. And he said to Dr. Sherrod, well, if you don't take her, I will full time. <laughs> and Dr. Sherrod said, nope, she's staying. <laughs> so he, uh, he went to bat for me and that's where I am. And it's just, you know, it was, a, it was interesting because I never saw myself in the outpatient, you know, sphere. Um, and you would think, you know, I would never think that taking care of a specific subset of cardiology patients would be as challenging and rewarding than I, and than anything I've ever done, even at the ICU, you know, in, in the ICU when we had really critical patients and it's just been, you know, uphill ever since, you know, with that um, on the, you know, good trend, not uphill, like, you know, hard, but <laughs> like, I don't say downhill. Cause then I feel like it's like a 
you know, cruising it, but, I know, but it's, so you've it's, been in the, you've been in the office now for a number of years. Um, you've seen quite a variety of patients. Um, but I'm going to guess that no two are exactly alike, are they? No, that's for sure. That's for sure. That's what I tell almost everybody who comes in, the fellows um, that stick with us, other nurse practitioners who I mentor, um, you know, some students that come through. I, I like that they get to sit with us because I remember going to school not and coming out of school, not knowing a single thing about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You know, they mm-hmm. might have asked one or two questions here and there but I don't remember them. I don't remember, you know, in my practice, I don't remember even in the cardiothoracic intensive care, taking care of my ectomies. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I never worked in a center of excellence before. So, you know, those surgeons didn't do that. And if they did, it wasn't really talked about, you know? So um, I try my best to give them as much information about HCM as possible when they're within my, uh, um, you know, underneath my wing for the short amount of time that they are, especially the nurses, because they're the ones at the bedside that can recognize things more than, you know, most. So other than rewarding and challenging, what is it about HCM that is that defines rewarding and challenging? Why is it so different than other forms of cardiology from an NP's perspective? Um, for NPs, I mean, it's, it's from NPs perspective, I, I think it's about the opportunity to teach and step in the gap between the patients, um, other providers, um, you know, physicians, other nurse practitioners, PAs, um, bedside nurses, home care attendants, um, you know, but also the patients, you know, a lot of our patients, when they come to us for initial consultation, have unfortunately been mismanaged for a while, you know, yep. and, it's, and it's really because of a, a, just a lack of general community awareness about HCM, which I know you're doing everything in your power to, you know, bring to light, but, you know, it's, it's, it's institutional, right? Also it's, it's community, it's citywide, it's, you know, statewide, we have to work kind of in these microsystems to really work our way out. And for me, it's, it's the feeling of how are we going to get this patient to where they need to be and the challenge of that individual, but also the reward in, in seeing them come through on the other side to where they're like, wow, I can breathe again. I can walk again. I can do these things again that I could do five years ago. And everybody told me it was just because I was getting um, you know, older that I was, uh, it was something else, you know, they were diagnosed with and, and it wasn't working. They weren't listening, um, to really feel like they're seen, you know, like patients when they come in they, and they, and I've had patients actually sit there and cry just out of pure joy that they're finally being seen and heard because we look at them and say, or I know I do for sure. You're not crazy. There's a reason for your symptoms. Sorry, no one's found it yet. But okay, so let's know. stop there for just a second. Mm-hmm. What other cardiac condition do you have to reassure somebody that they're not crazy? Like, this is a challenge. And I'm so glad you brought it up so organically because we deal with it every day here at the HCMA. My doctor tells me I'm a hypochondriac. My doctor tells me that I'm hypervigilant. He says that I'm I'm anxiety ridden. Why is this happening to our people? What's going on out there? Thank you for seeing them. Thank you for bringing that up. But why does everybody think we're crazy? Well, unfortunately, because the symptoms of HCM can look like so many other things, right? Like we all, we say in, in, in the community, we say HCM is the great masquerader, right? So when someone presents with dizziness, you know, then they, um, then they get diagnosed with vertigo or they get diagnosed with orthostatic hypotension or postural hypertension, hypotension or someone comes in with shortness of breath, but only when they exercise, then they get diagnosed with exercise-induced asthma, right? Or adult onset asthma. Somebody comes in with chest pain, 
but they wind up doing a whole workup for chest pain, including an angiogram, find clean coronaries, and they say, you just have stable angina. Well, where, where does angina come from? Angina is not a diagnosis, it's a symptom, but we've treated it, well, people in the community have treated it as a diagnosis. Um, so, you know, it's a matter of understanding that we have to look for the Trojan horse, you know, when things aren't so obvious. And there's a misconception that you have to have severe thickening or systolic dysfunction or, um, you know, significant arrhythmias to actually have bad quote unquote HCM, right? Like, you know, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't take much. You could have, you know, I've had patients who are mildly thickened with very, you know, low gradients who are very symptomatic versus some patients who are very thick with high gradients that I feel fine when I do my tennis workouts, you know, and it is very individual. And so understanding that and trying to understand the cause and, and everything I think is important, but I think, and it's hard to say because maybe we have bias, you know, selection bias, but because that's, this is what we do, but I would, I get frustrated to know that there are some providers out there that just stop looking for a cause and they say, it's anxiety, take a clonopin, you know, it's, that's why you have your palpitations or that's why you have, you know, this exercise induced asthma, we'll just stop exercising. Right. And then you tell them to stop exercising and then they, they lose their overall wellness ability, you know, which so is, you know, that gives about. us a great segue into our next conversation here. We're, we're here today because you published uh, your lead author on a new article in the International Journal of Cardiology, uh, Cardiovascular Risk and Prevention, and it's entitled Weight Loss and Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, a Clinical Case Series. Um, your co-authors include Dr. Sherrod and Dr. Masera and others on the team there at NYU. Um, and when I called you and I said, hey, let's talk about this on podcast, you're like, I'll get the doctor. I'm like, nope. I want the nurse and I want you to talk to us about this article. Um, Not that I don't respect the docs, but I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to our nurse practitioner community in HCM because you guys carry so much of the weight of this community and you know so much and people go, oh, but they're only an NP. I'm like, yeah. That means, you know, they can do just about everything, including moving mountains and saving lives and all kinds of lots of things. I think nurse practitioners rock. So, yay, NPs. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about the overarching, like, why did you want to even do a clinical case series on this particular topic? Where, where did this come from? Well, I have always had, I think because I worked in the cardiothoracic intensive care and the cardiac care unit for so many years as a, as a bedside RN and seeing their patients at their worst for a long time before I was in NP, I really was thinking like, well, how did they get here? You know, how did these patients wind up requiring these massive surgeries and, and this, you know, go into this real cardiac dysfunction um, at times. And so I've always had a a passion for prevention and wellness and overall preventive care. But knowing that our society, unfortunately, as a whole, is very reactive and not very proactive when it comes to disease management. So that's always been a passion of mine in general. And so then when I stepped into the HCM world, you think, well, it's a structural heart disease, right? There's no, you can't prevent it. There's nothing you can do to keep people from getting HCM. Well, yes, that's true. But we also know that patients with HCM tend to live very long lives, obviously outside the subset, unfortunately, that die young and suddenly, right? So these long lives means you have plenty of time to develop all the other diseases that are out there that are preventable, like diabetes and high cholesterol and coronary disease, right? Mm -hmm. If you get those other things with HCM, your outcomes tend to be worse. Worse. So that's to me was what started it really. And then I was reading 
all of these um, amazing articles being published by, you know, like uh, Dr. Jacopo Olivodo and Dr. Funagali and all these physicians that were focused on how obesity impacts HCM and looking at the, the outcomes and how their, their hearts are heavier, they're, they're thicker, there's more dysfunction, there's more risk for pulmonary hypertension or high pressures in the lungs. There's more, um, um, you know, thickening. There's more. There's more atrial um, arrhythmias, things like this that are associated with with obesity. And it's not heavy, heavy patients. I'm not talking about BMIs of 40 and above. I'm talking about even pre-obese patients between 25 and 30 that have these effects as well. The higher the weight, the more impact is what it is. But there's a direct correlation in these studies that I started seeing and I started thinking to myself, well, is any of this reversible? You know, can we, can we change something about this dysfunction when it starts to happen if we can lose the weight? And so the case series was about looking backward at it. We looked at our subset of patients and we found six patients who had HCM, who had lost weight and had some imaging before and after. Now, um, they, um, you know, they were, they were, because it was a rec, what we call a retrospective review or, um, the, the, um, you know, looking, looking, we weren't controlling it, right. We were, it had already happened. Um, we, we didn't take an intervention right, to bring right, about right. change. We looked so to see what interventions they did. And right. then we said, Hey, let's compare the hearts pre-intervention and post-intervention. Right. So because and, they had routine scrutiny, you know, routine imaging that they have, you know, just clinically, we looked at those routine images and they, they changed, they differed between 12 months apart to four years apart, you know, so it was a little bit of a variable there. But what we found was that they had a significant decrease in the mass of their heart, 25% decrease of the actual weight of the heart itself, but also um, the thickness decreased in the muscle walls. And for, for out of 18 segments that we measured, there was at least a one or two millimeter decrease in 14 out of 18 of those segments. And in the septal wall, there was a 19% decrease on average of, of wall thickness. And so this is the first time that anyone's ever really shown this to be possible and in patients, especially with HCM without myectomy or ablation. So, so let's pause there because that was a lot of data. It's awesomely presented. Thank you. But I want to unpack pieces of it for our audience. So I want to go over a couple of terms as well, because uh, we will put the, the link to the article um, up on the website uh, along with this uh, podcast and recording. Um, so. There are different forms of dysfunction of the heart that can be caused by being overweight. And they're typically referred into two different classifications, metabolic heart disease and obesity cardiomyopathy, which I've seen some, you know, some people say yes and some people say no. And what is HEFPATH and what is not, you know, so we're still defining some of these words, which is really kind of interesting too. Um, but can you talk about what obesity cardiomyopathy is and what metabolic heart diseases, and then we'll put it on top of HCM. Sure. So, um, so metabolic heart disease, we'll start there is, um, is when the heart is affected by what's happening within the metabolism of the body. So systemically what's going on, it affects the heart and it could be cardiac remodeling. It could be energetics. Um, it could be um, demand uh, on the heart. And so, because the, 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 you know, when we're conceived and when we're born and we're designed on the genetic level on how our bodies will be shaped and how our, how our organs are going to be shaped within us. So when we surpass with additional weight, greater than what our hearts have been designed for, the heart has to basically keep up and overwork. And so the metabolic heart disease happens based on, you know, lots of things that contribute to that, like hormones and, and, um, uh, additional need for proteins and, and oxygen demand and things like that. And it changes how it functions, um, in, in a way that makes it 
what we consider overworked. It requires more demand to keep up with what's being asked of it. Um, and so the difference between that and obesity cardiomyopathy, obesity cardiomyopathy is more about how the heart looks when it, when patients are obese. So when, with, in studies that were done, not in HCM patients, when you look at just obese patients without a diagnosis of HCM, what happens in their hearts is their hearts get a little bit thicker also, but they also get bigger. They dilate. And so mm -hmm. the difference between obesity cardiomyopathy is it thickens proportionately to itself and to the demand of the body. So in HCM, the heart thickens disproportionately. And what happens is the volume is actually decreased by that thickening. In obesity cardiomyopathy, they not only thicken, but they increase volume. And that's because it's almost like if you think about a bodybuilder who pushes up a lot of weights, the more weights they push, the bigger their muscles get. And so that's exactly what happens with the heart. Now, you can reverse a lot of those changes in obesity cardiomyopathy. It's basically like detraining, right? Like an athlete's heart. It's a similar, mm -hmm. con similar concept with an athlete's heart because with athletes, they also get thicker and dilate for more volume to give them more oxygen to their muscles that they're using for their performance. Yep. So it's very similar in that way, but there's a lot more dysfunction there because it's disproportionate to what the patient's actually gaining. If that makes sense. So if you take these metabolic and obesity related changes to the heart and the heart happens to also have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it is defined as wall thickness greater than 1.5 in the absence of valvular heart disease or greater than 1.3 in a family history of HCM. Right. And then you add some hypertension due to obesity and then you add in some metabolic heart disease and that heart gets that little extra thick. Mm -hmm. That's the piece that's reversible. The underlying HCM Right now, we don't have mechanism to regress that hypertrophy. And I say right now with an underline, a bold, and a stay tuned because stuff's coming. Yep. Um, so stay tuned. But yep. with what we have today on March 23rd, 22, or I'm sorry, March 24th, 2023. And I do like to throw dates on here because if somebody's watching this in three years and they'll say, but what about that new drug I just heard about? Well, we didn't have it now. Right, so. right. Don't look back at me in two years and, you know, give me crap about that. <laughs> so with what we have today, changing weight can make improvements as much as a 19% reduction in septal thickness. Wow. Yeah. We should all probably do that. But how the hell do you do that? So let's talk a little bit about what the study showed so we had six patients here so it's not a big study but i can tell you that within the hcma data set and the people that i've worked with over many years who've gone through significant weight loss and i'll count that as like 25 pounds or more lost um either through gastric sleeve gastric bypass diet medically driven weight loss with different agents once they've dropped that, you know, 25, 30 pounds, the numbers change. I've seen it over and over and over again. So here are six patients, four of which lost weight, either with pharmaceutical aids or just diet exercise. And two had bariatric surgery. They, they had sleeves done and the results look remarkably similar. No matter how they lost the weight, the losing the weight was the key. Correct. Correct. Am I reading this right? Yeah. And it's, and it obviously, like you said, it's a small subset of patients, only six patients. So obviously more studies are needed, which we're currently doing to, you know, kind of make this a little bit more structured, a little bit more intentional and, you know, enrolling more patients, um, which I'm actively doing at the moment. Um, but 
you know, to valid essentially to validate what we found because in all the other previous studies, it hasn't been proven that you can lose thickness in the wall. But our end goal for any treatment that we have for HCM is symptom improvement, right? And for me, that's the biggest thing, right? I, yes, I'm impressed by the thinness or the thickening decreasing. I'm impressed by the mass decreasing. I'm, I was very pleased with the results of this, you know, looking back. But what I'm most happy about what I'm as a provider is that the patients, every patient who had class two symptoms or greater out of, out of the NYHA class symptoms, which is the, the heart failure classes, um, felt better. Anybody who had a class two or greater dropped at least one class of symptom management. And so they felt better after the weight loss. And, you know, and this is key, especially for patients who have already exhausted all the therapies that we have available today. You know, patients who have already gone under my, you know, one of those patients had had a myectomy already 10 <laughs> years prior to this study. Oh, and, wow. And it's still fairly thick. And she had that, you know, we had basically said to her, you know, we don't want to put you through another heart surgery. Why don't you try bariatric surgery instead to see if it improves how you feel? And, um, you know, and she said, well, I, I mean, I guess I don't want another heart surgery either. You know, let's see how it goes. And she actually had one of the more dramatic results where she lost almost six millimeters of wall thickness in her heart. And so, um, that is just one of the patients out of the six, you know, and we're hoping obviously to replicate that. And she got through the surgery well, safely, no problems. There was no complications, thank God. But, you know, um, she felt incredible afterwards. And she's actually now an advocate. She's a volunteer for our patients who are thinking about weight loss or who we think should have surgery because they've exhausted all their other weight loss um, options. options. Well, you know, and they're still struggling. And so she's, she actually will volunteer volunteers to speak to them and say, Hey, I did this. I did all the things. And this is what, you know, I, I, this is how I feel now. And she's, you know, living her best life, which is amazing. And to me, that's, that's everything. That's the goal, you know, of everything I do every single day is to get them to that point where they feel better. And, and, and especially I feel like, and obviously this is just my outside perspective looking in as a patient with HCM, not having control over how that disease is going to progress because it's genetically driven it's empowering to know that you have control over something. And if you know that by taking control of this one thing, you will improve your heart disease as well. And to me, I think that that is key for a lot of our patients because they feel like, wow, I did this when I didn't think there was anything I could do. So I want to talk a little bit about like before, Kind of the, as you're getting to this point where you're, you, you have that uh-oh moment, you look in the mirror self and you say, I'm going to drop a few pounds or you go out shopping and you grab the next size up rather than the size you've been in. And you're like, well, I'm getting older and I'm too lazy and I eat too many carbs or whatever. Um, before we get there, or as we've made that first move to go to that bigger size or that I'm not as flexible or comfortable as I was in my own skin, um, moments I know well, I've been there, people. Um, so why do people with HCM maybe struggle a little bit more with weight? And what are we learning about cardioenergetics and how our bodies actually burn energy? These are some big kind of heady topics, and I'm going to put it out there to say Maria nor I have the exact answers to these things today, but this is evolving. And, and I want to hear what you think about what we're learning about cardioenergetics. Sure. Um, so one of the biggest limiting factors, I think, for patients with HCM in their journey of weight, you know, whether it's gaining weight, losing weight, um, is the fact that symptoms 
tend to limit patients from activity. And so it's, it's all well and good for me to sit there and say, Hey, you need to walk at least three, four times a week, 30 to 40 minutes at a moderate pace. When a patient with, you know, significant heart disease, you know, says, I, I can't walk more than two blocks without having to stop and take a break. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so obviously on the medical side, you know, we're, we're working on that with medications and we're trying to see how can we improve symptoms so that you can become more active, but it really, we have to stop thinking about it as if we do this first, then we can do this. It has to be driven together. Right. Because like you said, like things that are being driven as far as what we, what we are now learning more and more about, like you said, with cardio energy, Energetics is is all about demand and what we are requiring for just basic metabolic process to occur. And so when we, you know, when you think about just basic ingestion, digestion, right, what we take in and what we put out, right? We talk, we call, we talk a lot about basal metabolic rates. Um, what your body requires for the certain amount of energy that you're expending. So somebody who has a sedentary life, meaning that they have a desk job that they sit at all day, they don't do a lot of walking at, you know, nine to five, and then they go home and they sit on the couch and they, you know, watch TV and they don't exercise, right? This is what we call a very sedentary life. They get in their car to drive where they go. It's a little bit different in New York City. We walk everywhere, but, you know, like I live in Jersey, so I'd also drive everywhere when I'm here. Um, so it's, um, you know, when they're, when they're on the go like that, or when they're not on the go like that and they're very sedentary, their metabolic needs are going to be lower typically, right? Typically. But if they have HCM, which requires more demand, more metabolic demand to get the heart to do its basic functions well, and, and, and do, you know, function, you know, the way it's supposed to in the setting of this disease, then it's not going to, your, your, your body is incredibly adept at surviving and it's going to go into survival mode. It's going to focus all that energy on the heart itself versus burning fat, you know, from your hips and your legs and your thighs and your belly, you know what I mean? And so it's going to, you know, essentially want to store as much reserved energy as possible because your body knows it's going to need it for the heart. And so that's a, a big mismatch. You would think, oh, if I'm burning more energy because my heart demands it, then I should be losing weight, right? It's not the case. It's because your body knows that you require more energy to do your basic cardiac functions as well as it can in the setting of HCM, then it actually won't allow you to burn as fast as you can. So that's why we actually have to increase our activities to burn more of that actual body fat percentage, you know, but, but what's also key is what we're actually putting into our bodies, right? Uh -huh. Because the more nutritionally dense foods yep. versus calorically dense foods, meaning high nutrition versus high calorie, if we have a higher nutrition content in the foods that we're eating, your body's going to use that food better than it uses those high calorie foods. Now, sometimes they go hand in hand, right? It doesn't necessarily, high nutrition doesn't necessarily mean low cal. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're together, right? Like when you're thinking about like beans, for instance, beans are a powerhouse, right? They're high in protein, they're high in fiber, they're high in vitamins and essential minerals. Beans are an incredible food for people to consume, but they're also high in calorie because they're carbohydrates, right? And so again, high, it, it's, 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 you know, we can have a whole other day on nutrition itself, but you know, it, it's important to understand that if you're fueling your body with the right types of food, meaning, you know, high veggie, high fruit, high protein, right? Low carb meals, your body's going to use that energy more efficiently than it will if you're giving it just carbs, fats, butters, dairies, milks, right? So we've done a couple of presentations on some new meds that are coming out um, that focus on helping the heart use energy more efficiently. 
And for whatever our reason, we have this disconnect between what we put in our mouths and what our heart needs in terms of nutrition. And I'm, I'm very, very interested in this nutrition pathway thing to see if maybe we can get some clarity. I've long been asked, what's the right diet for HCM? And we've long, long said a Mediterranean type diet, a, and, you know, which basically means don't eat carbs a lot, <laughs> like meat, vegetables, proteins. You want to stick down that path and you want to stay away from cheap carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, Cheap carbs and I have been having an affair since like I was a kid. Okay. We love them. Americans. (laughs) I'm addicted to bread people. Good bread. There's nothing in the world like good bread, but it sticks around forever. Mm -hmm. So like you have to make those choices. What, what feels good to eat? What does your heart want to eat? And we don't know specifically Mediterranean versus, um, you know, a plant-based diet versus strict carnivore kind of paleo type diet. There's all these concepts out there. Um, and we're not going to say today, this one's better than that one because there's no science for us right now to say that, but we know that the heart metabolizes a lot of energy and what we feed ourselves helps limit the obesity problem mm-hmm. as best we can control. Right. I mean, my biggest thing is when I try to explain, you know, try to help patients with diet, because there is that question, right? What's the best diet? And as cardiology, you know, providers, we in general, right, that that has been the case Mediterranean diet. And there was that study done last year with the Mm -hmm. 20 patients, right, that have followed the Mediterranean diet who had HCM who they, you know, they lost weight, but they also, they tested their walk scores and their symptoms, right? And they all improved. They didn't necessarily say it has to be Mediterranean. They just said that if we implement something like this, right, then the patients felt better and they performed better with HCM. So, but it's every person's metabolism is different. So some patients need a little bit more carbs than they do. Um, you know, other patients don't need so many, right. It's all about body type and things like that. And so that's why for me, when I talk to patients about starting points, right, just start somewhere to help yourself. I tell them to focus on the perimeter of the grocery stores, right. That they have. Oh, 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 wait, I'm going to jump in on that one for a minute. So I'm going to sound very spoiled here and this because I have a wonderful husband. Um, I have not been grocery shopping a lot since before the pandemic mm-hmm. because I'm a heart transplant patient and there's lots of humans in grocery stores and I've tried to keep my distance from humans when I can um, to not get sick. Um, I'm not completely paranoid, but he took over most of the grocery shopping. Yeah. Well, Monday night, um, we didn't get to go grocery shopping this weekend. It was busy. So Monday night, I went to the grocery store and I haven't really wandered a grocery store in three years because there was like nobody around. I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like literal kid in candy store. I'm like, what's here? I was absolutely flabbergasted by the amount of processed garbage in the quantities that were there. And I'm thinking humans are eating this and it's so bad for us. What are we doing? Just salt, sugar, fat. Hats off to to my dear friend, Michael Moss, who wrote the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Are Killing Us or Tricking Us. Um, Great book, read it. Michael, we still need to do this podcast at some point. Um, But it blows my mind at how we're spending so much money on drugs to fix us when we're ingesting this garbage, garbage, perimeter shopping. When I was a young girl, Mrs. Holland, for all of my old school, you know, folks, um, she was like this lovely lady who had his tiny little house in our neighborhood. And we would go, we would go to the store for her, whatever. And if somebody would take her grocery shopping, she's like only the outside, you only need the outside. The woman lived into her nineties. Okay. She was awesome. Um, but yeah, 
the outside. Stay to the outside. And Jean, you too. You're also and probably still the on. same. And the reason why it's on the outside and not like, you know, people say, well, why don't they mix it up or whatever? It's because of it's actually a very logical reason is because of the electricity. They have to be able to, you know, keep cool it. certain foods cool and things like that. And so it's all on the perimeter on the walls, right? So, and that's, that's where I tell patients to start, but then I tell them the next step is to actually speak to a dietitian or a nutritionist who understands, right, how food processes and things, because we also, as a society, and again, I can spend an entire hour just speaking on this, we have to think about social determinants as well. Absolutely. Because people, instead of just saying, well, you have diabetes, you should eat X, Y, and Z. Oh, you are overweight. You need to walk outside X, Y, and Z. Well, are we asking patients, can you afford these things? What kind of access to a grocery store do you have? For instance, I live in New York city and in the Bronx has one of the largest food deserts you've ever seen. And a food desert means that you don't have a whole food grocery store within a five mile radius of your home. And so where these patients shop are these bodegas, these small mini marts, right? And these places are not equipped with as much whole food options and nutritionally. So let's just define whole food, not the store whole food. No, no. Whole whole foods. Yeah. Like non-processed doesn't come with a label type of food, right? It comes from the ground. It comes from the earth, comes from a tree. Um, you know, those types of whole foods, like fresh fruits and vegetables and lean proteins. Um, so, you know, we have to ask these questions, right? Do you have a safe space to walk in your neighborhood? Is your neighborhood safe for you to go out and venture into, or how can we work that into your apartment, you know, type of thing. So these are conversations that are happening more often, but they're still not happening enough. And, you know, we have to stop talking to patients, but instead asking them, what do you have access to? And then working within their realm, you know, because yes, you have HCM, but you may also have financial difficulties and we we should, we should really focus on that too. You know? So I remember, I think it was the first time I was, I'm going to sound very name droppy here, but I've been invited to the White House on two different occasions for two different conversations on cardiovascular health in America. And the first time we were there, um, we talked about the food deserts and how certain, not what we didn't think of commonly as a food distribution center could turn into one. And it was basically the CVS Walgreens uh, model that they were going to bring in some fresh fruits and vegetables, that they were going to embed those. uh, They were going to stop selling cigarettes. They were going to they were going to be this this oasis. So I was like, okay, we're moving in the right direction. So I recently walked into one of those types of places and to get to the couple of things that were fresh, you had to go through all the salt, sugar and fat that was on the walls in front of you to get you to the milk, the juice, the the cheeses, the eggs, the, the basics in life. I'm like, damn, we were so close and we screwed it up yet again. So you can go buy all these foods that are probably adding to making you feel bad as you go pick up your prescription for your heart. We have a disconnect in our society and we got to wake up big time. And, you know, nutrition is a big part of that. And so, again, if we you know, we need to take control of these things and nutrition is obviously a large majority of weight loss. But there are some times where, you know, you can eat as healthy as you possibly can. You can try to be as active as you possibly can. And there is there again is a metabolic mismatch between because of what your body requires and what you're trying to accomplish, right? That your heart is going to limit it, limit you because of your underlying HCM. And so, and so sometimes medications then need to come into play, right? And we now have the most effective medical sleeve, you know, type of perceived, you know, options that are out there with the new injectables, like the GLP ones, like, um, Ozempic and Wagovi, um, Sixenda, um, the newest one, Munjaro, which is actually a combination drug for weight loss. And these are specific for weight loss and, and also have been 
shown in some cardiovascular trials or patients who have, you know, mostly coronary disease, right, which is the most common heart disease out there um, amongst Americans, at least. And again, 95% of those cases are preventable because of lifestyle change um, that can occur. But, um, you know, when we use these medications, just like we use medications for our heart, we tend to be treating the actual underlying disease, right? Because obesity doesn't start as a disease necessarily, but once we cross that threshold into obesity, our metabolic changes that occur actually keep us there more often than not without some type of intervention. And sometimes that's just diet for some people. For others, it's diet and exercise. For for a large majority, though, there's medical intervention that needs to occur, and it's either medical or surgical, just like HCM, right? Um, so we have to start looking at it that way as well. You know, there are sometimes we have genetics that just predispose us to being overweight, and we win the genetics lottery. You got genetics for HCM, you get genetics for obesity, right? And so, oh yeah, I got both of those, <laughs> but. But even within that, again, there are things we can do to manage as best as possible, right? And again, that's where medical intervention comes. So I don't want patients to be discouraged. Like I try to explain to them, like, listen, majority of this is likely not your fault, but you also have to come to the place where you want to take control over it, you know? And, and sometimes I even recommend therapy for patients to go in to actually speak about this because you know, you can have, there's a real thing in the nursing realm. We have nursing diagnoses versus medical diagnoses. And in nursing diagnoses, we talk about more about how things affect the patient specifically. Um, so it's like um, for a, a, a mother taking care of her son, there's a nursing diagnosis like caregiver role strain, right? And how it changes being a parent of a healthy child versus a child with a chronic illness. Correct. And there's patients who have, but there's a nursing diagnosis for um, patients who deal with chronic illness, right? And it's and it's um, like it could be depression related to chronic illness. It could be anxiety related to chronic illness. And this is um, something that I think the medical community, as far as and I know, I, know, I love my physicians, and they definitely focus on this, as at least in my you know experience. But I know that there are a lot of physicians that just want to treat medically, whereas nurses, that's where we can step in a little bit more to to have the time to discuss with the patients about their emotional needs as well, because this is important, especially if you want to gain control of your health. So you, you bring up so many important points and yes, we can probably come back and talk about some of these other issues at another point. Um, but we don't just have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We have a life mm -hmm. and in that life, we have lots of aspects of that life that need to be considered and addressed. And if you don't have HCM, there is a really high likelihood that you're carrying some other kind of medical issue, whether you have weak teeth, a bad ankle, a sore arm, you have Crohn's disease, colitis, pulmonary issues, kidney issues, everything in our body can be a little broken and still kind of work. But the differences of some other chronic diseases and HCM specifically, it is your heart. Nothing else works without the heart. If the heart stops working, the rest of the system just shuts down. So when you have a disease that can be a little unpredictable, make your days not consistently the same experience, it adds a level of stress, anxiety, and worry into your day. We know that. We get that. Maria gets it. And there are a lot of people here to help you with that part of HCM too. The docs are going to talk about your anatomy, your interventions, what I can do to make that pump work better, what I can do to make that electrical system work better. There are mechanics and they get in there and they tinker. And then there's the nurses who put all the pieces together and help make sure you know where the resources are to take care of the whole you, not just the heart you.
Is that a good explanation of what Maria does every day? Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, we, you know, we, we essentially fill in the cracks, you know, between um, the patient's you know, diagnosis and the patient's life. Right. And we try to make, I, you know, I don't ever, like I always tell patients, I don't, especially on a new diagnosis, I don't want this to necessarily define you. Right. I don't want you to be defined by your heart disease. I want this to be a part of you. It is a part of you. And I want you to understand that you can have a very normal existence. Right with the occasional blips of needing to focus on your heart more than other days. And we want to get your symptoms improved to the point where you don't think about it every day, right? Necessarily. Um, but then I also don't want you to ignore it. Right. And so there, you know, that's another balance education, right? Balance. But again, and, and this is actually very important to me when I see my screening patients, right? Mm -hmm. So the NPs, myself and my colleague, NP Woon, uh, Wu, she, we see all of the patients that come in for screening. So all the family members, all the children, all the siblings, all, even parents of our patients that come in, we see them for screening. And one of our topics of discussion is about preventive care. Because we say to them, even if we don't know if they're gene positive or not, if you know you have the potential to get a condition that is out of your control, I especially speak to my 20-year-olds about this that come through, the young adults that come in, do your best to live a healthy lifestyle for your entire life to prevent yourself from becoming obese or getting diabetes or getting, you know, watch your cholesterol, watch your blood pressure, right? And get these things under control as much as possible. Because if you know there's a potential there for you to get something that you can't stop, at least in 2023, we have no way of stopping it once you're born, you know, if you're yep. going to get it. Exactly. Um, then do your best to prevent everything else and keep yourself as healthy as possible because that is going to improve your outcomes if you ever do develop HCM. So that's, especially for my screening patients, I really, I'm a big advocate on, and I, I've thought about a lot creating a preventive care model for those patients specifically because we see a lot of family members. And that we wanna keep everybody as healthy as possible. So in conclusion, in this article, we come up, or you, you and your team came up with the conclusion, weight loss may favorably influence the HCM phenotype. Those are really powerful words. They're simple, but they're powerful. Um, influence. That's as much as we can infer here. It, it's not going to stop your symptoms. It's not going to stop the disease, but it's got a negative influence when there's too much weight and we can influence it to the positive side by taking some control to, to my girls out there, 50 and older, my guys too, but mostly my girls, we know that there are specific challenges in the postmenopausal woman to lose weight. Mm. Um, you know, our grandmas all look like our grandmas look because, you know, they were postmenopausal women. And, you know, my, my grandma's famous line was you need that extra 20 pounds in case you ever get sick. Um, <laughs> Cause that's how she just, I just have extra 20 pounds on me. In the end, she might have actually been right about that, but that's a whole other story. But we want to make sure that you're fit and healthy as much as possible. Just because you're where you are doesn't mean that's where you have to stay. Every day you can make a choice and it's not always easy. It's not always socially easy to do either if you're out with everybody else and they're doing something and you want to do it too. Um, I don't care how old you are. We all lean to peer pressure. If there's pizza on the table and you're from Jersey, you're going for a slice of pizza. Just the way it is, you, you might get tossed out of New Jersey if you don't have a slice of pizza occasionally, but don't eat the whole pie. So that's the <laughs> have thing, your slice. Right? There has to be room for balance. There has to be room for those opportunities that when we are on a weight loss journey, especially you have to allow yourself these moments to say, you know, and, and, and it also talk, it's also changes the way you speak about it to yourself. Right. You know, we, we tend to say like, Oh, I've been so good today. Right. I, I ate so well. I, 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 I was so good. Right. This week. 
instead of saying I made really healthy food choices this week. And so I think I can allow myself this slice of pizza when I'm at this party because I want to enjoy myself. And if that's part of your enjoyment, then do it because there has to be room for that. Right. And that, and that one slice of pizza isn't going to deter you. You know what I mean? Like you can't say, Oh, well I had a slice of pizza today. I was bad. I might as well, you know, have for another week and then try again next week. Right. It's like, allow yourself those moments of, 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 if that's what's bringing you joy in the moment, allow it. Right. Don't guilt yourself about it. Don't feel shame about it. Right. And say, you know what? I've, I've made really good food choices this week. I'm going to have this and not feel guilty about it. And then tomorrow I'm going to continue on with making more food, healthy food choices, you know, and it's every day. And for someone like I know for myself, I've had a weight struggle most of my adult life. It's every day is a challenge. And again, that's why we have to look at it as if it was a disease or an addiction, right? Type of thing. Every day is a choice. Every day is a challenge. There's going to be triggers. There's going to be life. There's going to be stress. There's going to be a day for access, right? Mm -hmm. Access. There's going to be a day where you have more symptoms than others. And on those symptom days, you're going to be sitting on the couch more than out there in the world because you don't, you you're afraid of provoking a symptom. Um, and you might sit on the couch and just mindlessly eat a bag of chips, right? You know, so this is, again, these are the moments to, to say, okay, well, I can't control how I feel right now because I know this is from my heart condition, but I can control what I do today to give myself a healthy day so I can be better tomorrow, you know? And so that's, um, it is, it's a struggle. It's an everyday issue. Right. And, and when we, when we fall, I don't want to say fail because every day we fail forward, right? Two steps back, three steps forward. Right. But when we fall and when we're incapable of doing it for ourselves, there are people out there who are willing to step in the gap for you, like your doctors, like your nurse practitioners, like the nutritionists and, you know, like your peers at the HCMA and your discussion groups and here on the line, we're, we're all here to help you through it too. Community, right? Your community yeah. is there. So we understand. And we understand the unique challenges of this issue in, in HCM. I'm going to wrap us up here in just a moment. We've got a full hour. It seems like 10 minutes. Um, I, I want to give a shout out and thanks to our sponsors, which include Tanaya Therapeutics, Embrya Pharmaceuticals, Bristol Myers Squibb, and Cytokinetics. Without their support, we couldn't make educational programming like this possible. So thank you for your support. And I do want to kind of push a, an upcoming webinar we're planning right now. This is an unusual topic. We've, I've covered it years ago on YouTube. Um, I've taken them down because it got a little old and my hair was really short and I didn't like them anymore. Um, but I'm going to do this a little differently. We're going to hold a webinar about HCM and your sex life. And I will be joined by Dr. Alex DeFeria, HCM patient and physician. He will be handling the guy's point of view. Um, yours truly will be handling the girl's point of view. Um, there will be breakout rooms where the guys can talk amongst themselves and the girls can talk amongst ourselves. And this is going to be a grown up only conversation. We will talk about all kinds of things, um, but we need to talk about it. A sex life is part of a life. And unless you're a priest, I don't know anybody who doesn't include sex in their life. Um, so we want to have these real conversations. Um, we're looking probably to put this on in May. If there are questions and there are content topics you would like to make sure we cover, we're planning that out now. So talk to us. You can send it in an email. You don't have to post it publicly on Facebook or in our social media feeds. You can email us support at 4hcm.org and we will be happy to take those items under consideration. The world is complicated. HCM is complicated enough and we don't need to make that part of our lives any more complicated than it need be. We're going to talk about sex, baby. 
I like that one, nurse. I love it. I think it's so important. You know, mm-hmm. it really is. It's part of an everyday, like I said, the enjoyment of life, right? I mean, especially in a, in a healthy relationship, you know, there's already enough when you have a diagnosis of what your spouse has to deal with or your partner, um, you know, has to also come to terms with the fact that you have this condition. I think it's really important to have those intimate conversations to say, you know, they may be afraid of, of engaging in sexual activity and fear of, of, of harming their partner. And I think it's super, super important um, to have these conversations. So I'll be watching for sure. It'll be an interesting and engaging conversation. I am sure. So stay tuned for more on that. Maria, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us and your compassion. We really appreciate what you do for the community. We appreciate you and thank you for joining us on Tales from the Heart. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Okay. Goodbye, Facebook. Facebook.